Welcome, everyone, uh, to uh, the second in the Mansfield series, um, which we have, is a lecture series or a talk series that we have every Friday night in term time. And, uh, and we always um, uh, seek to bring exciting, challenging, interesting speakers uh, to the college. But we are being particularly pleasured tonight um, because we have with us our visiting fellow. And our visiting fellow is Joe Klein. I should have said that I'm Helena Kennedy and I'm the principal here at Mansfield College. Um, Joe Klein is here as our visiting fellow. Um, we captured him because we heard that he, was, uh, he wanted a sanctuary from which he could write his next book. And we said, come uh, and be amongst us. And, uh, and we will give you um, a little haven to do that. But in return, we want you to spike our uh, lives with some interest and controversy and, uh, and stimulation. So he's here with us tonight. Joe Klein is one of America's really great journalists, uh, political commentators, analysts, and a novelist. Um, he, uh, he started his life in, you know, different forms of journalism, and he'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, really, um, for me, the, the business of being somebody who wrote for Rolling Stone, uh, you have to understand that for somebody of the 70s, um, that was one of the great sexy things to do, was to write for Rolling Stone. And anyway, he did write for Rolling Stone, he was a contributing editor um, uh, from 75 to 80, and then went on uh, to become a grander and greater um, till he now is um, there with um, uh, Time magazine, and uh, he's, he's written for, for every kind of great journal, um, from New York uh, to The New Yorker to, I can't begin to, to, to tell you. He's won many, many awards, and I'm not, I can't give you the list because there are many. Um, but as I say, recognized as one of the great American uh, writers, journalists, commentators. Um, one of the things, of course, that made his name, one that is known the world over, was that he wrote Primary Colours for a generation that perhaps was not around um, or sentient um, in the 90s. Um, in January 1996, um, Primary Colours was, pu was published anonymously. It was a novel of politics. It took you right into the White House. and for six long months, because that's what it seemed like at the time, um, nobody knew who the writer was. And then eventually he was outed and, uh, and confessed all by July of 1996. That book, A Great Read, became a great film in which uh, John Travolta starred as the president of that day. The young journalist might have been the man who's about to speak to you today. Anyway, I invite before you, Joe Klein. Thank you, Helena. Although you made me seem very old. Um, and I really mean thank you. I mean, I, Victoria and I have been here for about a month or so now, and you have made us feel extremely welcome. I'm just honored to be part of Mansfield College, uh, honored and chuffed. See, we're beginning, we're beginning to learn the language. Uh, 
And, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, the topic tonight is kind of a confusing one to me. I mean, you know, whether the special relationship, we, did you want me to talk about my relationship with Clinton? Or you could talk about your relationship with me. Well, actually, my first thought actually was that um, you had wanted me to talk about a, a particular area of expertise of mine, which is America's very special relationship with Israel. It has a very special relationship. No? We were no? thinking that we were the special relationship, we Brits. But, Don't you have a special but, relationship no, with well, us? <laughs> but before the, the Brits, now, what about China? Can I do China? Now, now, now there's a special relationship when you think about it. Um, they, give us, they give us hundreds of billions of dollars to buy their stuff. And they, and they actually expect us to repay them. How, how bizarre. Um, I mean, knowing that if we ever really tried to repay them, we would, it would crash our economy, which would crash their economy. Now, that's a special relationship. Uh, but it's this, England. And uh, I guess the best way to sum up the way Americans feel about our special relationship with the mother country right now is to count the number of words uh, that the president spent describing that relationship uh, during his recent State of the Union address, which was zero. Uh, uh, Did he mention any other country? Come to think of it, we only do have one special relationship with ourselves. These days, and it is with ourselves. It's a kind of onanistic special relationship, and it's a consequence of um, what's happened over the last ten years and over the last thirty years. And today, I I want to talk to you a little bit about how America sees the world. But then I also want to propose a new special relationship uh, between our two lovely countries. Uh, Here's how America sees the world. We want it to go away at this point. We have had an entirely embarrassing time of it in the world, dating back to the 1960s uh, when we invaded Vietnam. We had a tremendous triumph when we overcame communism, but all you have to do is look at Sochi right now and uh, to, to realize that communism wasn't all that much to overcome in the end. A lot of nuclear weapons and a lot of nothing. Uh, but in the last 10 years, we've had these misadventures in both Iraq and Afghanistan that have turned the American people inward toward themselves. As a journalist in the States, I go on these road trips uh, throughout the countryside. We crowdsource them, uh, ask people. I announce it on TV, my itinerary. We ask people uh, to call in if they want to put together a group of their friends and neighbors or co-workers to talk about American politics. And during the first, and, and I started this after coming home from Afghanistan one year and turning on the TV and seeing all of these angry white people shaking their fists and not knowing who they were. They were the Tea Party. 
Uh, and so I figured I'd better go out and find, find out what that was about. I also realized that I probably knew more at that point about the Middle East than I did about the Middle West. And as I traveled through the country, I found something truly amazing. There were no questions from civilians about Iraq or Afghanistan. We had troops there. We had kids there losing their lives. And there were no questions. There were plenty of questions about China. And when you look at the way America sees the world at this point, China is the only country that um, we really think about, with one exception that I'll, I'll get to in a minute. Uh, and we see China as a threat. Americans do. China is this euphemism for this vast rest of the world that's taking away American jobs and changing our, our economy and making people frightened that their kids wouldn't live as well as, uh, as they have. But beyond that, um, there is only one other foreign policy issue right now that engages Americans, but it's only a small sector of Americans uh, and it's mostly in the lead, and that is the question of the Middle East and Israel. Uh, and it's become a particularly interesting question within the Republican Party, which has always been the more aggressive, the more militaristic, uh, the more chauvinist party. Uh, but there is a faction, but there is a, but there is a debate within the party now between the Tea Party sorts and the libertarians who believe that we have absolutely no role in the rest of the world militarily, and the neoconservatives, uh, mostly many of them Jewish intellectuals, who are very bellicose. In the past few weeks, they have been lobbying furiously to scuttle the talks that we're in the midst of with Iran. Uh, the lobbying was shameless in many cases, uh, by, by the, uh, especially by the Israel lobby, uh, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, which today, here's a bit of news, today uh, announced that they were going to stop their lobbying campaign, campaign, I hope, in part because it had become so embarrassing. I mean, you know, another really special relationship. How many other allies do we have uh, where the, their, their president, in this case Bibi Netanyahu, would involve himself in an American political campaign uh, on the side of Mitt Romney, and then in recent weeks attack the American Secretary of State uh, for saying an absolute truth, which is that if Israel doesn't come to terms with the Palestinians, the secondary boycotts that are beginning now and the opprobrium of the world are going to, are going to uh, be disastrous for Israel in the end. Uh, we've been, I've been, obsessed with this region ever since 9-11. And gradually, in my conversations with the president and other leaders in the country, we've come to see that the area from the Mediterranean to the Hindu Kush 
is a, a vestigial problem. Uh, 98 years old now with the, uh, you know, since Sykes and Picot drew all those straight line borders. And uh, when you look at a map of the region and you see a straight, straight line border, you know that they didn't draw it. We did, or you did, actually. There's this ridiculous straight line along the top of the Hindu Kush that was drawn in 1897 by Mr. Durand, or perhaps Sir Durand, uh, which divides Pashtunistan from Pashtunistan, which is actually, you know, I don't know which, at which point which countries in that region are actually real. I suspect that Pakistan, which is, a, which very, the very name Pakistan is an, is an acronym. Acronym. Um, I suspect that Pakistan isn't real, but I'm pretty sure that there's a Pashtunistan out there. Uh, and I think that over this time, the president has come to the conclusion that because of the new technology and because of uh, the, the uh, new means of communications and because of the passage of time and because of the end of the global struggle between the United States, between the free world and communism, that the people in that region have come to the point where they're going to make some decisions over the next 20 and 30 years. It's going to be a particularly um, bloody time, I, I expect. Uh, the borders aren't going to be redrawn easily. But, and, uh, and I must say that we touched off this explosion when we invaded Iraq uh, unjustifiably. But the president has decided, and he especially decided in the case of Syria, that it wasn't our place to intervene. That it was the Syrians, um, it was up to the Syrians to figure out uh, where the borders would be and who would and, and what Syria would actually be. There's always been a Syria. But as I look at that straight line on the, on the eastern border, I think um, of the tribes uh, in that desert, in Al-Anbar province in Iraq and the Syrian desert, which know no border. And I suspect that they will be the ones deciding uh, where the new borders are. Yes, Helena. There, the human rights abuses have been absolutely dreadful. And it would be nice if we could step in and do something about it. But we need, at this point, to be home in the way we approach the rest of the world. After all, we had a president who, 10 years ago, invaded Iraq not knowing that there were Sunnis and Shiites and that there was a difference between them. Uh, and, and that brings me actually to, to the main topic here, which is what, what we both have in common now and what we can share and give the world going forward. Um, back in the 1950s, there was an American writer, uh, uh, history, historian named C. Van Woodward, whose specialty was the South, the American South. 
And he wrote a great many fabulous books. But one of my favorites was a book of essays called The Burden of Southern, Southern History. And he argued in that book that the South was different from the rest of the country because it was the only part of America that had lost a war. Uh, and therefore, Southern culture was different. It looked much more to the past. He had a famous line uh, about Southern writers being the only ones who created characters with grandparents. I think he was mostly thinking about Northern male writers, but we'll leave that be for the moment. Uh, and the South had become this nostalgia-soaked society. And it's something that resonates here. Uh, when, we, when Victoria and I come here, is, is that this is a nostalgia-soaked society as well. And you're not alone anymore, because the United States is now a nostalgia-soaked society as well. In fact, um, we're nostalgia-soaked for your past, given the popularity of Downton Abbey. But what does this mean? What does it mean that we look backward? I noticed this trend, by the way, back in the 1970s, right after Vietnam, when all of a sudden there was this extremely popular breakfast cereal called Homeland Natural Cereal. And it was, it was presented in a sepia-toned box. And uh, I was working for Rolling Stone. I had to go out and find out who the genius was who came up with this because it was selling like hotcakes, as we say. And it, and it turned out that they had done market testing. And what they found was in the wake of Vietnam, in the wake of Vietnam, the category that they called natural slash nostalgia had, was rocketing among the American people. And in the 70s, I remember falling deeply in love with Bruce Springsteen, whose rock and roll was nostalgia drenched. It was, a, it was a combination of riffs of the 50s and the 60s and Latin music um, into a joyous blend, kind of celebrating things that Americans were nostalgic about, like motorcycles and highways and girls. Uh, and I think that that kind of nostalgia is valuable. It's important for us to remember and treasure our past. I was thrilled two Fridays ago to be led into the, uh, the Robert Burns dinner by a bagpiper. I was thrilled by the toasts. Uh, I was thrilled by the ceremony. But when you think about this, when you think about our two countries and what we have in common at this point, I think it also shows us the way to go forward because we've lost tremendous things, both of us. You lost your empire. You've lost the dominant economic position you had in the world. Um, and we've lost our innocence. When I was in grade school, teacher could say America has fought eight wars and we won every one of them. Uh, we can't say that anymore. 
we can't go to the rest of the world and say that we always act benignly in the world's best interests. But we can go to the rest of the world, as I think President Obama is beginning to do. And we can do this jointly in a new special relationship. We can, we can go to the world with humility and say, we don't know everything. And we're not going, going to invade you. And we are going to cooperate. But, and we are going to offer you the benefit of our, our experiences, our tragedies, our stupidities, and our occasional triumphs. Of course, uh, in all of that humility, we must continue to be vigilant. There, are new, there is a new quality of threat uh, that we have to watch out for. Uh, I don't believe in unilateral disarmament when it comes to, uh, to um, data mining processes or uh, when it comes to cyber warfare, which I believe is going to be the next really enormous threat that we face. But humility. Point number one in the new special relationship. The other, the, the, the second point is humanity. No two cities in the world are more alike, in my mind right now, than London and New York. The absolute heterodoxy of them the beautiful blending of all sorts of people walking hand in hand in the streets or arguing or having lunch together. And it reminds me of a story. In 2009, I was in Iran for the elections. And I went to a debate watching party over on the north side of town about a week before the election. Um, and I got to tell you, parties in Tehran are as good as any place in the world because they don't have anything else to do. They don't have clubs, uh, and this was a this was a pretty pretty good party. Uh, and I found myself talking to these these two professionals, both of whom had been educated in the United States. One was a doctor who had been ed educated in the States twenty years earlier. The other was a um, an engineer um, scientist of some sort who uh, had been in the States more recently, but kept on coming back for professional conferences. And the doctor asked the engineer, what's it like there now? Has it changed? And the engineer looked at him and started laughing, and he said, you wouldn't recognize the place. They don't have any Americans left. <laughs> now, I wasn't quite certain of what he meant when he said that until two weeks later, and this is why my job is so <coughs> ridiculous and amazing. Two weeks later, I mean, they pay me for this. This is crazy. Uh, two weeks later, I am in Arkansas at a town meeting held by a woman senator, Blanche Lincoln, uh, in front of an audience of 1,000 melanin-deprived white people who are screaming and howling at her repeating talking points from the most disgraceful corners of right-wing media in the States about how the Obama administration is suffused, not just with socialists, but with communists and, and uh, 
and how he's secretly a Muslim and all the rest. And all, and all of a sudden the light bulb went off. Uh, as I looked at these people, and I said to myself, this is what that, that Iranian engineer was talking about. These people represent the America of the past. Actually, it was always a fantasy. In fact, it was a fantasy cooked up by a bunch of Jewish immigrants in Hollywood in the 1930s, all those picket fences and, and uh, Andy, you know, Andy Rooney and let's put on a show and let's have a parade sort of thing. Um, but for these people, these thousand white people, they looked at America, they looked around them, themselves, and, and uh, they saw that the old manufacturing jobs that had sustained their families had gone off to China, and that all of a sudden this new group of people, um, South Asians, had come in and they were running all the convenience stores and motels. Where on earth did they come from and who were they? They kind of looked like black people, but they're not really black people. And then there were all these Mexicans who came in and they wouldn't even speak English. And I could see these people thinking to themselves, and my grandson has just moved to New York and announced that he's gay. And, and my granddaughter is dating someone from Malaysia. That sounds like a disease. Uh, and the President of the United States doesn't have the good sense to be either black or white, and his middle name is Hussein. What have they done to my country? Where has it gone? And as I had this thought, I realized that all the things that they were afraid of, all the things that they hated, all the things that they were concerned about with the one big exception of the economy, those were all the things that I loved most about America. And those are among the things, when I go to London or when I walk the streets here in Oxford, that I love most about the United Kingdom. This is something that we can show the world. It was first our idea. That's what made America exceptional, the idea that no matter what you look like or where you came from or what your religion was, the things that we had in common as people were the things that were more important than the things that divided us. You've come along and, uh, and, and, uh, and we're very happy for that. Uh, we are both, both of our societies are facing real challenges to that principle now from the same sources, from UKIP here, from the Tea Party there, and I'm sad to tell you that uh, while it looked for a while uh, that there would be immigration reform in the United States. Uh, the House my, a Majority Leader John Boehner announced yesterday that there wouldn't be because he didn't want to divide the Republican Party. Well, I think it's more important to unite the world than, the, than to divide the Republican Party. And I think going forward, the second part of our new special relationship should be humanity. The fact that we stand for common humanity, the equality of all people everywhere. I don't mean economic, sheer economic equality, I mean equality of opportunity and, and, and justice and freedom. There's a final thing, which is a little bit more ineffable, um, that we have in common. 
And, you know, the old joke is that we're two countries divided by a common language. But we're not, really. There's a kind of creativity in both of our societies, a loveliness. It stems from the language. You know, and that language, when you think about it, is, is beginning to uh, become the world's language. And it's becoming so because it is so supple. You know, it can be nano-efficient in technical terms. It can be wicked clever. It can be languorously gorgeous. But it's more than that. It represents a kind of aesthetic, a beauty, and a sensibility that values the human spirit that both the United States and the United Kingdom share. And so, in the end for me, the special relationship is something very personal. It's what I feel walking through the streets and driving through the countryside of this green and pleasant land. The fact that I feel totally at home here intellectually, morally, aesthetically, and so thank you, Mansfield College, for calling me here and allowing this prodigal son to return. Thank you.